0: Uh, In my never-ending pursuit of trying to surprise you with uh, um, texts on marriage, I invite you now to open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and follow as I read, uh, beginning at verse 16. I'll read to the end of the chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. It reads like this. we might become the righteousness of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, uh, we've, we've come to a place in this uh, series on marriage where I, 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 um, I, I think it's... Uh, well, what we need to do is kind of push a pause button and try to... Um, try to solidify some of the gains that we have made thus far. I, I say gains. Uh, I hope they're gains. I, I hope we're moving in a right direction instead of a, a wrong direction um, because, as I've said a couple of times, and I, I don't think I need to remind you, um, that there's nothing worse than than a bad marriage. There's nothing better than a good one. And so what we're looking for is not... not um, we want to go in the right direction. We want to. We want to gain. We don't want to lose. So, uh, what I want to do is three things this morning. I want to. I want to start by uh, summarizing the first two sermons in this series, and then I want to make some applications um, that I have not been able to make up to now. I mean, just hadn't had time to squeeze them in anywhere. So, I'm going to squeeze them in now, and and then the next week we'll move on to Ephesians chapter five, uh, where where the plot thickens. Um, but I, so I want to summarize, I want to apply, and then my last piece of application is designed to clarify something that's very important in this whole matter. So th- those are the three things I'm going to do. I'm going to summarize, I'm going to apply, and I'm going to clarify. And hopefully, um, in the process, solidify where we are in this whole discussion of, of marriage. So let me start uh, this third sermon in the series by uh, quickly, briefly, summarizing uh, one and two. Um, first of all, I, I, the, kind of the first point that I made in this whole series was this. That there has to be an agreed upon, in the, in the marriage, it, 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 for both partners, there has to be an agreed upon established authority. Uh, something that is an agreed upon um final say in the marriage, something to which both of us are willing to submit and something that we can both turn to uh, for direction and that we both agree that that's the place that we're going to turn to to get our direction. And I said to you then that the the only thing that can play that role is God speaking through his word. Without that, what we end up doing is kind of drifting from pillar to post, uh, wondering how this whole marriage thing fits together. Uh, I've said this in a previous series that that if, if you do not have this, this authority, uh, that, that this, this blueprint given to us by this authority, then what it's like, it's like trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle without the box top. You know, we got all these various little pieces sitting on the card table, and, and we don't have a box, we don't even know what it's supposed to look like. And so in marriage, we got all these pieces. We've got the, um, we've got the in-laws piece, that's a biggie. Then we've got the career piece. That's another one. And then we've got um, money uh, and sex and, and, and um, kids. We've got all these pieces um, that, that, that go into making up a marriage. But we really don't know how to fit them all together. Because we don't know what, what it's supposed to look like unless we have this mutually agreed upon standard or authority. And I'm saying that the only one that can qualify to play that role is God speaking to us through his word. That was the first point I made. And then we talked about the flaw in creation. You may recall, um, you know, it's not good for man to be alone, uh, as the text says. And, and, and I said to you then, which was kind of a new thought for me, is that the flaw um, was not that Adam was lonely. The flaw was that Adam was alone. And because he was alone, there was no one to whom he might empty himself in self-sacrificial love, like his God had done for him. And for this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife. For what cause? Well, for the cause of creating an opportunity where I can uh, pour myself out, I can empty myself in self-sacrificing love. But to do that, You've got to have at least, you've got to have one other person. There's got to be a duality. And uh, for Adam, who was alone, there was only one, so there needed to be a second person. Um, And so you have two persons, one male, one female, uh, who are both um, seeking to pour themselves out in sacrificial love to the other. But instead of that, what we've got is this soaring divorce rate. Why is that? Well, as I said in the in the first sermon, it's because we have two people who are not growing spiritually. Now you say, oh, well, I expected him to say that. Uh, But you know, guys, we 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 poo-poo spiritual things. We we don't have time for spiritual things, and then we wonder, we wonder why our marriage is so lifeless. And so then we try to inject some some pizzazz, some Zoom, zoom into the marriage any way that we can possibly think of, including, on occasion, unfortunately, an affair. I said that the key is self-sacrificing love. Not the merger of our two worlds, but the abandonment of our two worlds, so that we can create an altogether new third one. Um, enabled by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit in, in the lives of two growing believers, two people discovering more and more the beauty of the gospel and its effects in their lives. And that was the first one. Last week, we looked at um, Genesis chapter 3, and I, and I said to you that the big problem, um, th- the big problem in marriage is not that we don't have anything in common, the big problem is the one thing we do have in common. Sin. Now, we got that in common, don't we? And, and, um, and, and I, I pointed out that humility is the thing that will move us in the direction of a solution. Um, it moves us in the direction of a solution because humility uh, is moving us in the direction of Grace. That's the promise of God. In, in James chapter four, verse six, the text says, "I resist the proud, but I give grace to the humble." And so then I asked, what, is a, what does a grace-based life look like? And I gave you three things. I gave you three things, and I said, first of all, that a grace-based life is a life that, um, where you begin to view life, uh, the, all of life is a gift. And because you view all of life as a gift, you become more content and less angry. Huh. You reckon that would help any marriages that you know of? Less anger? More contentment? The second thing is that you begin to view other people differently. That is the second characteristic of a a grace-based life is that you begin to view other people differently. Um, because you've, you've seen how broken you yourself are, you, you, you begin to view others differently, because they couldn't possibly be as broken as I am. And so there's less of a critical spirit. Oh, we don't have any critical spirits in in our marriages, now do we? And then the third thing, the third thing, that the third characteristic of a grace-based life is that a, a grace-based life makes you into a... You're good at relationship repair. And all relationships eventually are going to need to be repaired. And the two things necessary are repentance and forgiveness. And I said to you last week, repentance is not saying, I'm sorry. That's an apology. And repentance is not an apology. Repentance focuses on sin. and Sin's the problem, folks. And then once I have repented, then it then becomes incumbent upon my spouse to forgive. Oh boy, and that one's usually harder than the other one. And because forgiveness is an act of unconditional grace that has three component parts to it. First of all, um, I drop all charges. Second of all, I demand no compensation. And then thirdly, I bear the penalty of the offense myself. That's what forgiveness does. And those are the two things that are necessary to repair the relationship, which is a characteristic of a grace-based life. And so... It's humility that moves us in the direction of grace and the grace-based life, ladies and gentlemen, will revolutionize your marriage. Now, that's number one and that's number two. What, I'm, what I think now is that several lessons emerge from those ideas. And, and I want to share five or six of them, but the last one is, is the one that's the most key, the one that I've got to clarify And make sure that I get clear in everybody's minds. But let me mention um, three or four things that are just just applications. And and, and I'll start out real simply. And and, and it's simply this, guys. That that those of you who have already checked out of this series um, on marriage because you are not married, um, I'd like to ask you to reconsider because much of what's in this series is applicable to everybody, not regardless of your marital status. For example, having the Bible be the authority in my life, that's, that's not just true for married people. Or, um, um, having, or, or Or living out a grace-based life, that's not just for married people to do. That's for all of us to do. And then, and then thirdly, this whole idea of relationship repair. You know, I can't tell you how important that is, but I don't think I need to because I think you know it already. I think you know that in this relationship that you're in that you value very highly. You do value your marriage, but there are numerous occasions where mm, there's some stuff that needs to go on. But, I mean, to repair the relationship. But that that's true of any relationship, ladies and gentlemen. So, all I'm asking is that those of you who have checked out, because you're not married, I, I wish you'd tune back in. Because um, I think this is for you too. Now, that's the first lesson. Here's the second one. Guys... Um, Secular counseling will inevitably fail to address the issue. Now, gang, I'm making a distinction between secular counseling and Christian counseling. I'm a fan of Christian counseling. But secular counseling will always fail to address the issue. Uh, it, It may bring you some moment... Um, a moment of temporary relief, but it cannot um, set in motion God's power in your life. Oh, but when I met with my counselor, uh, she made me feel so much better about myself. Uh Ladies and gentlemen, that's the wrong direction. That's like painting rotten wood. We don't paint rotten wood. We replace rotten wood. Guys, um, while a secular counselor may put me in touch with my feelings, it can never put me in touch with God. And that's who I need to be in touch with. Secular counseling, why it may make me feel good, it cannot, in fact, make me good. That's something that only God can do. and, And... Secular counseling cannot do that. It it, it also, it, it will never call any of its counselees, it'll never call you to repentance. Guys, counseling is a good thing if it drives you to Christ. And secular counseling, by definition, will never do that. Now, what I'm saying is, guys, if you're in the place where you think, you know, we really need to get an outside third-party mediator, whatever, that choice is very significant. That's a very important choice. Be careful when you make it. Third, I hope you won't ever hear me say in the course of this series that any marriage ever becomes perfect the most faithful believer will continue to struggle with self-centeredness and 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 the, the most Christ-centered marriage will continue to struggle with this issue of self gang This is the thing that I wish we'd all get, that we'd all be able to admit openly. We're all broken. Guys, a Christ-centered life, a a grace-based life, perhaps will minimize the brokenness, but it will never eliminate it totally this side of heaven. Gang, if anybody tells you that their marriage is perfect, they will lie to you about other things too. Guys, let me tell you why this, this point is really important to me. Um, I had people say to me a couple of times a year, I had one say, say it to me recently. They said, um, well, I could never go to that church where you're the pastor, Dr. Young. And, um, Usually I know why. I mean, you're such an obnoxious slob, you know. But but, but what they say is, I can never go to that church where you're the pastor, Dr. Young, because all those people over there, they just appear to be too perfect. Really? Well, let me let you in on a secret. That ain't true. Now our money our money has maybe allowed us to cover up our brokenness a little bit better but we're all broken and the the quicker and the sooner you understand grace the more willing you are to say that you don't have to protect or 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 defend some kind of image or maintain this image because we know that we're all broken and so are our marriages. Listen, there is no such thing as a perfect marriage. Look around you. Everybody seated around you, nobody, none of them, none of us, nobody has a perfect marriage or a perfect home. It doesn't exist. So don't ever hear me say that's what you can end up with. I'm not teaching that. Fourthly, and this may be a point that's only important to me, but guys, you can grieve over the brokenness of your marriage too much. And then it turns into this inappropriate false guilt and shame. Or you can grieve over your marriage too little. And that becomes a a cavalier indifference and a presumptuous attitude. Both of those. Both of those grieving too much and grieving too little. Both of those things are laced with self. Guys, um, both of you. Both of those... Grieving too much, grieving too little. Um, What you need is more of Christ, more of the gospel. We are um, we are to live our lives based on the promises of the gospel made to us. We're not supposed to be uh, formulating a marriage on some kind of psychobabble, my friend. If if you are grieving too much, it's because you don't understand the gospel. If you are grieving too little, it's because you don't understand the gospel. Our grief and our brokenness is supposed to drive us to Christ. Let me me give you an illustration, which is a somewhat unfortunate illustration. I don't even like my own illustration, but it's the best I can think of. Let's imagine, unfortunately, that in your marriage, God forbid... There has been an affair. The consequences of such an act are inevitably bad. But the only option we have in the face of that kind of, or any kind of brokenness, is that it drives us to Christ. Christ. We are, we, are, we are not to um, um, uh, throw our shoulders back and act like it's no big deal. It is a big deal. But we are also not to wallow in self-pity and shame. Every time I hear somebody say this, my skin crawls. They say, well... I know that Jesus forgives me but I can never I could never forgive myself. Ladies and gentlemen that is fueled by a misunderstanding of justification by faith. That's grieving too much. And it's because you don't understand the gospel. That's not holy. That's not spiritual and say, well, I know that Jesus forgives me, but I can never forgive myself for what I did. Nonsense. What you need is a better understanding of the gospel. So, you can grieve too much. You can grieve too little. But both of those are full of flesh. They're full of self. Let your brokenness drive you to Christ. Now, fifthly, no marriage, regardless of how broken, is ever beyond repair. I mean that. Two people who are willing to die to self, willing to repent of their sin, you can fix this thing. I'm not trying to tell you it's going to be easy. You didn't get yourself in a mess overnight, and you're not going to get yourself out of a mess overnight. It's, it's going to take some time. But, you know, interestingly, um, what normally happens in, 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 in trying to... I mean, instead of fixing or trying to fix, because I said, if you're willing to die to self, you can fix this thing. But instead of doing that... We choose the option of divorce, and you know why? Because it's easier. Divorce is easier than dying to self. And so because that's so hard, and because I'm you know refuse to repent of my sin, well I you know we, we just we just we just have to divorce. I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, no marriage, regardless of how broken, is ever beyond repair. But what it requires is a willingness to die to self. Now, guys, let me me tell you how God saves our marriages. And this is the point that I want to make abundantly clear. He saves our marriages by saving us. He performs this This radical makeover. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what the text says. In verse 17, when it says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There, ladies and gentlemen, there is our hope. Right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew you'd say that, Dr. Young. You, You Christian preachers are all alike. You just say, well, just get Jesus and everything will be fine. I'm not saying that. But let me tell you what I am saying because I want to explain to you what it is that God does when he does this. I want you to understand when I say God saves our marriages by saving us, what it is that he's done. It starts with a new heart. You know, the book of Ezekiel talks about it and I love Ezekiel 36. It talks about exchanging that heart of stone and replacing it with the heart of flesh. Did you hear that? He, ta- he brings me to life by by digging out that old rocky, stony, hardest rock thing. And he replaces it with something that's vibrant and alive. He replaces my heart of stone with the heart of flesh. And one of the, one of the things that happens immediately is that I get a new set of eyes. Jesus said that in John 3. He said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom. You know, people call that being born again or the rebirth. Or in theological terms, it's it's called regeneration. But I get a new set of eyes and I begin to see things that I've never seen before. You know one of the things I begin to see? My sin. And I begin to realize the reason that my marriage is so fouled up. Is because of me. The reason that my wife has checked out like she has is because of me. It's because of my sin that I have such a wreck as a marriage. I've never seen that before. And then I see That God has provided a solution for my sin. In Christ Jesus. And so I reach out with the hand of a beggar. And I lay hold of a gift offered to me by a king. I receive the gift of eternal life. A gift purchased for me by Christ's finished work. And that reaching out is something that we call faith. I call it saving faith because, you know, ladies and gentlemen, there's a faith that won't save you. It's that it's that brand of faith that says, well, you know, I'm really a good person. That's ludicrous. Particularly if God has given you, I mean, if you've got these new eyes, you think, oh, good man, good person. Well, how did I ever believe that? Or um, my good works are somehow going to impress God. The Bible says, my good works are as filthy rags. Yeah, that's what they are. They're nasty, dirty, rotten rags. And I thought that was the stuff that was going to get me into heaven. How stupid could I have been? Wow. These new eyes. I see my sin and I see the Savior and I embrace Him. And as a result of that, I'm reconnected to God. The the theological term is I'm I'm reconciled to God in Christ. And, And many people like to call that the rebirth. And ladies and gentlemen, it is. It is a fresh start. I'm a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come, but let me give you a caveat. I am new, ladies and gentlemen. It is a a, a new a fresh start, but one um, one of the complicating factors is that it's my, my fresh start is not completely uninfluenced by my past. Do you understand that? Um, if I was a compulsive person before I became a Christian, I'll be a compulsive person after I become a Christian. But now, I have a new heart. I, I, have, a, I have a new spirit that dwells within me, thus giving me a new power over, over my own sin. And, and not only that, I have a book. I have a book that instructs me as to, as to how I'm to go and what decisions I am to make. And this book begins to ongoingly show me my sin. And I see, you know what? The reason my marriage is in such bad shape is not because of her. It's not because of him. And I begin to change. The stranglehold of sin has been broken. Its um, its penalty has been paid, and and its its power defeated. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Temptation is everywhere. But now, I've got a chance. For the first time in my life, I've got a chance to win over temptation. And so, in Christ, hope for my marriage is resuscitated. Though the battle, and it is a battle, that battle has not yet been won because Christians still choose to sin. And there is a personal devil that wants to destroy you. But I am now a new creature. God saves my marriage by saving me. And then my marriage becomes this practice field where I begin to work out all that God has worked in me through the gospel of grace. You know, guys, I can go down to the office and I can spend more of my time at the office than I do at home. And, you know, down there at the office, I can be a phony. I can pretend. I can fake it. And, you know, I can pretty much, I can pretty much make it. But not at home. all of my flaws, all of my imperfections, all of my selfishness as they get dragged out into the light because of my marriage. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that we Christians, we ought to be happy that we're married. Because it gives us a place where we can work on our sin. You know, I'm reading this for another another study. Actually, it's for Wednesday night. I'm reading it, but it's a... It's um, um, a 127-page testimony by John Bunyan. You know, don't, don't confuse John Bunyan with John Newton. I do that all the time. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. I love Pilgrim's Progress. But this is "John grace abounding to the chief of sinners. And he says something in here that I almost found funny. It's probably not funny, but he's, he's talking about his life, you know, what he was before he became a Christian. And then this... Anyway, listen... He says, and then with more greediness than ever, I let loose the reins of my lust and delighted in all transgressions against the law of God. Whoa. So I was the ringleader in all manner of vice and ungodliness. That's not how the sentence ends. (laughs) Let me read it to you. Let me read you the whole sentence. So... I was the ringleader in all manner of vice and ungodliness until my marriage. (laughs) What did he mean by that? Well, he doesn't say here. He does say later. But the the whole idea is, here I am going in this direction. You know, life is going. And all of a sudden, "Mm," what did that? My marriage. My marriage is the place where I saw, oh my goodness, you're a self-consumed slob. It was my marriage that became the laboratory in which I could experiment with righteousness and and deal with my sin. It was my marriage that became a means of grace for me because it became a place, a practice field where I could learn what it meant to deny self. My marriage, I was just the most hugely wicked human being ever until my marriage. No, ladies and gentlemen, marriage is not going to let you get away with that. But I can tell you this, no marriage, no matter how broken, Is ever beyond repair. Because God saves our marriages. By saving us. It gives me this new heart. It gives me this new set of eyes. I'm reconnected to God. I got a chance to win over temptation for the first time in my life. And little. Little. By little, I'm beginning to change. And so I said in the first one, and I'll say it again, there is no worship more pleasing or more acceptable to God than the worship of marital love. And I believe that because what marital love means is that two people have yielded themselves to Christ for the saving of their souls. And then, they are now ongoingly yielding to His Word in a Spirit-empowered effort to put self to death and then do something that is the best illustration on earth of our everlasting union with Jesus Christ. You want me to say that more simply? Well, here it is. Those two people in that marriage they have growing souls. Growing in their love for Christ. And growing in their love for each other. My friend, if you are not a Christian, it is no surprise to me if your marriage is lifeless. And that's a grief to me. A big grief to me. Because there's nothing better than a good one. But far worse than your lifeless marriage is what awaits you eternally if you're not a Christian. Apart from Christ, you are most likely doomed to a lifeless marriage. Apart from Christ, apart from Christ, you are most definitely doomed. Period. And I don't get great joy out of saying that. But according to this book, those outside of Christ will perish. And I don't know about you, but this book is my authority. Here's what we have to offer you. Jesus. Jesus Christ in all of his beauty, all of his finished work. So here's what I have. Here's the challenge I leave with you. Let's start. What do you say? Let's start a relationship repair. First with God through Christ, and then with your spouse. Our Father, I I do pray that you'll make this so, so clear to your people what you have wrought in grace uh, in our lives. That you you have done something so, so monumental that we can never view anything quite the same. That what we have to have is that new heart that only you can give to us. But with it, we are a people who have a chance to repair whatever brokenness exists in our life. Perhaps not perfectly this side of heaven. Certainly not perfectly. But it can make us a new husband. It can make us a new wife. It can make things so different that we won't be able to recognize what we used to have because what we now have is so blasted beautiful. Now, Father, uh, for those that you've led here this morning who have not yet met our Savior, would you open their, give them those new eyes so that they can see their sin and then go on from there to see Christ. Christ and Him crucified. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.